It's sometimes hard to get the right impression of London in the 12th century. The city evoked strong feelings from people at the time. There was a writer in the 12th century, a man called Richard of Devizes. According to him, the people of all nations flocked to London, and each nationality contributed to the lack of morals of the capital. To him, they brought only vices. He felt there were no righteous people in London, no, not even one. To him, there were more thieves in London than in all of France. But then you compare his take to the take of Fitzstephen, which I spent an entire chapter covering, and he said the only plagues of London were the, quote, immoderate drinking of fools and the frequency of the fires, unquote. We know that the Germans, who accompanied Richard I on his return to England in 1194, after his release from being a hostage of the Holy Roman Emperor, were amazed at the display of wealth and finery which the Londoners made to welcome back their king. The way they saw it, if the Emperor had have known the riches of England, he should have demanded a heavier ransom. Yet for all its wealth and splendour, or for all its vice and thievery, London was located in the Kingdom of England, and England, back in the 12th century, was in a pretty bad state. The entire nation existed only one bad harvest away from complete starvation. In 1189, we know the weather caused a massive famine in Wales, but we also know that during the reign of King Richard, this famine spread. Records tell us of a famine breaking out in England in 1193, and then 1194, and then 1195, followed by 1196 and 1197. And it appears to have been felt in France and in the basin of the Danube all over Europe, but it seemed to really enjoy spending some time in England. In 1196, just as the great Fitzosbert rebellion was petering out in London, events elsewhere began taking their toll. The endless, constant and vicious war between Richard of England and Philip of France was raging across Normandy, and William of Newbury records that, alas, the combination of weather and the ravages of war led to a most terrifying development. Quote, a famine produced by unseasonable rains had for some years vehemently afflicted the people of France and England, but by the disputes of the kings amongst themselves, it now increased more than ever, and when the lower orders of the people had perished everywhere from want, a most fell and cruel pestilence followed in its track, as though the air had been poisoned by the dead bodies of the poor." Unquote. Sitting in his monastery writing his account, William of Newbury could only talk about what he saw, but what he saw was dark enough. Quote, in other regions, how the affairs of that period went on is but little known to us. But concerning England, we speak that we do know and testify what we have seen during that time. On glided the flood of the disease, sweeping away each day, and by that form of sickness, which is called acute fever, so many persons, that scarcely could any be found either to tend to the sick or to bury the dead." Unquote. 
Now, this is not the Black Death, just the simpler acute fever, some kind of unknown epidemic, maybe even flu. But it left a population whose immune systems and bodies were weakened due to constant shortages of food, unable to cope with it. Take a few bad harvests and now add a strong virus. You don't need the Black Death to produce hell on earth. William of Newbury continued, quote, The customary ceremonies of the grave were dispensed with, and each hour of the day, whomever died was speedily returned to the bosom of his mother earth, unless where some more noble or wealthy individual had breathed his last. In very many places, large ditches were dug for the reception of the corpses, when, by reason of their multitude, it was impossible to inter each separately in the usual manner. However, when so many died daily, even the healthy began to despond, and went about with pallid and cadaverous countenances, as if on the point of death. In the monasteries alone the disease took but a little hold. At last, after ravaging everywhere for five or nearly six months, it yielded to the cold of winter." Unquote. This epidemic, for all its ferocity, did not pause the war, as William of Newbury concludes, quote, "...the minds of the brawling princes were still harder than even this scourge, fierce as it was, for they joined winter to summer and autumn in their desire for war." Unquote. Yet while all this is going on, we must turn our gaze back to the city of London. So as we've seen, there's great wealth there, where the rich and mighty men, nobles, yes, but also bishops and archbishops and oligarchs, London's Eschevins and their mayor who's still in power, and displaying the trappings of this great wealth as they consolidated their hold on the city. Yet this is only what's on the surface. Despite the sheer amount of detail I've gone into over the last few episodes, London itself, at this time, exists in the shadows, really. There is much going on, but the exact politics of the city we only get in bright moments, like we saw with Fitzosbert's rebellion, briefly flaring like a nova before fading away. To work out the actual politics of what was taking place, you know, how London related to the kings of England and how that changed over the decades, the changing economic conditions, the changing societal conditions, the nature of individuals' response to power and how power changed over these decades. To understand that, we need to peer into these shadows as best we can to try and come at these issues from the side and work out how London was trying to navigate this era. Hi, my name is Saul, and you are listening to the Story of London. This is a podcast dedicated to telling the chronicle of the city, but presented as a singular narrative tale. Due to the complexity of the city, this means there are often diversions along the way as we try to do justice to the multitude of events taking place within the city, and sometimes we don't have the clearest evidence for it. This episode is one where we need to peer into the shadows of deeper research as we move from a linear sequence of events to examine the stuff that had been going on in the background while I'd be discussing the other chapters that went on before this one. Even with all the detail I've been getting into, there are aspects of the events I've had to ignore, and these elements of the story can and do change how we see some of the materials I've covered recently. So this episode is simply me 
trying to peer closer, delve deeper into those shadows. What dances of politics and influence were taking place while attention was being focused on romantic kings and charismatic mares. Welcome then to chapter 80 of the story of London, The Dancers in the Shadows. I think it's only fair to warn you, this episode is going to go into details on small things. It's an especially nerdy episode, but then again I make no secret of the fact that I am somewhat of a historical nerd, but you've been warned. We're going to start this episode by musing on something that happened in 1196. The Church of St. James Garlickhithe was constructed. Now, it was located on Garlick Hill, but it has to be said that the region's link to garlic selling itself did not really begin until the next century. At the time the church was begun, the region was associated mostly with wine. It was called Vintry, after all. But it must be understood that trade in wine and trade in garlic often began going hand in hand, the two items being shipped together, as adding garlic to wine was a common enough delicacy. And this mention of garlic allows us to cast our eyes back to something I have mentioned a few times and once talked about extensively all the way back in chapter 52 of this podcast. London and its relationship with the spice trade. Because we really do, now that we've covered the story of how the Eskevins and the mayor of London had basically maintained control in the face of the revolt of William Longbeard, have to return to that trade in spices, as it's a fantastic backdoor into how London worked. By studying this particular trade and the issues around it, we get to see themes and motifs that run throughout the story of London. At least I think so. So, let's start. In the decade before we get to where we are now, if you gaze at the pipe rolls of the sheriff's accounts for London and Middlesex, you will find a list of 19 guilds which were fined by the Crown for coming into existence without its license. In subsequent entries in the pipe rolls, they are described as the adulterine guilds, simply because in the Crown's eyes, they had no legal standing. Amongst them, amongst the adulterine butchers guild and the adulterine clothmakers guild, is the pepperers guild. Now, we know from those records it was fined 16 marks of silver, 15 times more than most of the other adulterine guilds of London. And we also know the name of its alderman or master. He was somebody called Edward. We're not too sure who he is, but we have a few suspects, and who he is, as you will see, becomes really important later on. And that is, I'm afraid, all we know about the adulterine Pepperers Guild of London. But trying to work out the clues behind those few lines of information casts a light into the shadows of these eras. For some historians, you see, the emergence of these unlicensed guilds should be seen in a somewhat sinister light, which the label adulterine suggests. For these historians, this connected these guilds with the political developments which led London to form its commune and gain its own podestra, the London Stone of Henry Fitzalwin. 
This school of thought advocates that the dominant theme in the city's history over the last few decades was the Eschivins, or oligarchs, some historians refer to them as patricians, are basically just scheming for their own independence and profit at the expense of the goodness of the city and trying to set up a small group of rich, interrelated families who will dominate the city's government for the next few hundred years. For them, this adulterine pepperers guild was one of the organizations created by the Eskivins to serve their mercantile interests and help them gain control of the trade and market privileges of London. You see, in most other towns in England, such control was enforced by something called the Guild Merchant, or Merchant's Guild. But London never had one of these, and the theory is postulated that the Adulterine Pepperers Guild was an attempt to try and create a body so the Eschkevins could, by back door, control London's trade. If you accept this argument, then most of the city's history from now on until the 14th century is all about the great dynastic families of London, such as the Bucarells, the Gizors, or the Froics, and how many of these were members of this Pepperers Guild, who they feel comes across as an elite even within the city's tight oligarchy and their fraternity acted in ways to gain power. It's a heck of an accusation, and it's one that warrants some kind of examination. Were the Pepperers Guild of the 12th century an example of how rich oligarchs of London maintained their control over the city? The Pepperers of London were different from the other guilds. They had merchant interests. By contrast, the guilds which are recorded earlier in London's history, or the other 18 adultering guilds, appear to either be religious, social or charitable associations, or they represent the interests of craftsmen such as weavers and butchers and goldsmiths. Pepperers, as was shown, say, in the case of the most famous pepper of the time, Durman, did not deal in pepper alone. A pepperer might deal in a whole range of luxury items. So not only are they selling spices, but they seem to be selling gold and silk and other rich fabrics. It begs the question, while we spent all of chapter 68 looking at the money pit and the growing financial might of London's emergent money market, could it be that this adultering Pepperers Guild have included the men who would later form their own separate guilds of mercers, drapers, the other mercantile guilds, that this was the first unofficial Merchants Guild of London. And it is arguable that of all the professions in London at the time, the Pepperers obviously had the most influence over the city's commercial policy. The reason for this is simple. The dealers in herbs and spices could break out to become the dealers in these additional luxury goods because they alone could sell affordable spices. All those foreigners who brought the spices in from overseas, well, they could only sell items in bulk. Over the episodes previous to this, whenever I've talked about the foreign trade in London, we've mentioned these foreign traders and we've had lots of examples of how these restrictions were placed upon them. 
Back in chapter 30, I mentioned how traders from the Rhineland and Lothargia were only permitted to sell pepper, wax and cumin wholesale by the quarter hundredweight or fustian by the dozen or half dozen yards. No foreign merchant might sell cuts of mercury or sell spices, alum, dyes or frankincense in qualities of less than 25 pounds and wax by less than a quarter of a hundredweight. This right, this power, was possessed by London-based merchants alone and they were determined to protect their monopoly over the retail trade. It made them enough money that they were able to become dealers in all luxury items, it seems. Proof of how profitable this had become for them is shown in the very nature of the fine levied against the Adulterine Pepperers Guild of London. They had to pay 16 marks of silver, far more than the guilds of the cloth workers or the Adulterine Butchers Guild, who were only fined one mark of silver each. Yet the Adulterine Goldsmiths Guild of London at the time was fined 45 marks. Both of these illegal guilds were dealing in high-end goods, bullion and spices, which explains why the fines were so much higher than, say, the butchers. But the fact that goldsmiths paid so much more does suggest that the size of the guild's fine in 1180 means that the members of the pepperers were a relatively small group of London merchants. All the better to be a secret cabal in the shadows trying to control the trade of London, yes? Well, no, not really. For all their wealth and influence, they certainly did not function in the way that guilds merchants did in other towns. In fact, there is no evidence that the city ever had a guild merchant. This complexity is coupled with the odd nature of domestic power. London had always been the king's property, so no Duke of London had ever existed. And the invaders over the years had had to come to terms with this. The size and complexity of London meant that the Danes and the Normans could only control it by working through this existing system of local government. And like the lawmen of Lincoln, who seemed to have lost their governing power soon after the Norman conquest, the lawmen of London acquired the title of alderman, and their power was preserved in the Hustings Court, because it was there that the responsibility of the citizens for much of their own local government was found. Royal authority was exercised over the city by a succession of officials who included titles like Port Reeve, Sheriff, Stallers, and you had the Castellans of the three fortresses, Montfichet Castle, Baynard's Castle and the Tower. And later, this royal authority was exercised by the Justicars, but undoubtedly, all of these royal officers worked with and through the aldermen in the Husting. Okay, stop for a second. Where am I going with this? Basically, it was this continued exercise of responsibility by the citizens in the hustings which made it unnecessary for London to develop a guild merchant either to administer the city's trading privileges or to take over control of its finances. London ran itself anyway. And as communities across England and Europe developed merchants' guilds who run and regulate their trade, London already had a long tradition dating through centuries before of doing that anyway. And by our era, the bit we're talking about now, it was well organised and very efficient. 
I mean, you want proof of that. At the end of the 12th century, uh, the merchants of London were so organised that when the abbot of Bury St. Edmunds challenged London's privilege of trading free of toll throughout the kingdom, at the hustings, the Londoners agreed to boycott Bury St. Edmunds. And they did so for a full year until the abbot effectively conceded their right. In short, it was the alderman acting together in the husting that took the place of a guild merchant, just as it was the alderman, not a separate body of merchants, who administered the law merchant in the city from its introduction at the end of the 13th century. There was no secret cabals of pepperers running things. And while we can talk about the powerful oligarchs of London, as Fitz Osbert showed, and this example shows, the alderman of London is where the real engine of the city's power seemed to lie. So if the Pepperers Guild did not serve as a body secretly controlling London's trade, should it be seen instead as one of the political associations through which London's so-called patrician families organise themselves in pursuit of their independence from the crown, maybe? Well, again, no. Because the only patrician dynasty that can be identified with the Pepperers trade in the 12th century was that of Diamond of London. And to add a spanner into the works of that theory, we must take on board that Diamond of London and his family were not just seen as pepperers and merchants, they were also moneyers. They came from a long line of coin makers of London. Indeed, it, it has to be said now that while I've spoken of the power of the oligarchs of London over many chapters, we must right now not fall prey to the idea that they were very long-running dynasties who ran London within their families for centuries. Yes, we have had examples like the family of Henry Fitzalwin, who seems to have survived from pre-Norman era to the first mayor. And some dynasties, such as the Gizors family, undoubtedly produced a remarkable number of influential men in London throughout several generations in our future. But these are exceptions, not the rule. City life, with its high risks of disease, fire and mortality, is not the ideal breeding conditions to produce long-lasting dynasties of city-based oligarchs. And as we saw with the likes of Gervais of Cornhill, the prestige attached to landed estates could draw successful merchants and moneylenders out of the city and away from their mercantile interests. Indeed, the very idea that a small cabal of dynasties of Eskimans effectively ruled London and passed on this ownership for generations, like some Italian city-state, is, I'm afraid, a romantic simplification. Yes, London had a situation, identical to most other communities in the Middle Ages, that its public offices were dominated by a relatively small group of the richer and more powerful citizens. Medieval opinion took it for granted that the rich and the powerful should act as spokesmen, lawmakers, judgment finders and administrators of the community. Descent from a well-established family inevitably added to the prestige acquired by the wealth, but it didn't make it a certain thing, as families didn't always make it for too long. 
So we can see in some cases, families use repeated names like Diemen and Theodoric, even when Saxon names were becoming unfashionable. And it shows us that some particular families in London moneyers took great pride in their descent, and maybe the Fitzalewins were kind of the same. But what has never been proven, and we must keep in mind always, is that families such as the Fitzalewins and the Cornhills and the Bucarells, they were never so tightly bound together by mutual interest and intermarriage that they formed a self-perpetuating and exclusive group of families which monopolised public office and ran the city to their own advantage. There was always ways into the higher ranks of London society and there were families always leaving the higher ranks of London society. The Eschivin class appears to have been a thing that existed because society and the needs of the community demanded it, not because it was perpetuated by the people who got there. It must be said, however, that as William Fitzosbert exposed, this group did have one major economic interest in common. They wanted to avoid paying taxes. The accusations of William Longbeard are not alone in providing considerable evidence that at the end of the 12th century and at other times, the aldermanic families probably used their position to tax themselves lightly or to profit from what we would call financial malpractice. But away from this, the aldermen of London cannot be identified with any particular economic interest during the 11th century and much of the 12th. Many of them owned property in London. Some had land outside the city. Some were prominent in wall service. Relatively few can be identified with a particular trade or a craft. There was no need for them to use the guilds as some subversive political association in order to gain more independence for London, when the hustings gave the aldermen a far more authoritative and powerful means of bargaining with the crown. And indeed, while it is clear that over several episodes I could give you the impression that London was in conflict with the crown, and that whenever possible, London sought to gain independence from the crown. It has to be said that the evidence actually suggests the opposite. That Londoners saw their relationship with the crown as a special one which they valued and had done for centuries. The city was not yet the capital in the sense of being a permanent centre of government, but it was a capital in terms of an urban community with power. In the Danish wars, Londoners had exercised their claim to elect and choose the king, as they had with Edmund Ironsides, Harold Harefoot, and then later with Edgar Etheling, and they'd done it again when they accept Stephen in the place of Henry I's daughter Matilda. They were a power to be sure. But also by the last quarter of the 12th century, you have to take on board that the Exchequer was now fixed at Westminster, and at the turn of the century it was followed there by the Court of the King's Bench. London was also gaining power because of the kings. Now, while I have often felt when studying the history of the city at this time, this shows London's spiky independence as a city, I must accept that one could argue that it was a tad more complicated than that. In truth, both the crown and the city profited from a harmonious relationship between them both. The support of Londoners was essential to the crown in political and military crisis and when there was a disputed succession. 
London had a special relationship with the royal court, and the frequent residents of the court of Westminster provided a rich market for the city merchants, who often continued to supply it on its journey out to the provinces. And Londoners then also got to serve the king in administrative offices, and their leaders had no wish to cut themselves off from this font of patronage, privilege, and profit. Throughout most of the 12th century, there were also political reasons why London should want a close relationship with the crown, whomever the crown was. William the Conqueror had installed three castles he built in the city to subjugate it, and placed in them three powerful barons who commanded sufficient military forces to keep London under the thumb. And we dedicate an entire episode to this back in chapter 55. Now, for the first generation or so after the conquest, these barons supervised the government of London for the crown as sheriffs or justicars. But, as often happens, they developed pretensions to hold office by hereditary right and against the powerful and often oppressive families of Baynard and Clare over at Baynard's Castle and, of course, the de Mandevilles over at the Tower of London, Londoners found themselves struggling to defend their ancient privileges or even their day-to-day -day livelihoods. Thus, in the shadows, a complicated dance began. Against such powerful resident nobles, Londoners could only look for protection to the king. He, in his turn, needed to keep a wary eye on the ambitions of his castellans. Even a king as strong and as ruthless as Henry I might consider it advantageous to make concessions to the citizens to counterbalance the power of his land magnates, which may explain why he was willing at a price to allow the city in 1130 the generous terms of the Charter, which we covered back in chapter 61. This charter, after all, gave them the right to choose not only their own sheriffs, but also their own justica, an office claimed by the de Mandevilles. The almost unlimited power over London that the second Geoffrey de Mandeville obtained from both Stephen and Matilda as a price for his wavering support may have been just what Henry I had sought to avoid by dividing power between the citizens and the castellans and it may have led to the fall of the de Mandeville dynasty as we covered in chapter 65. Similarly, in the second half of the century, the citizens sided with the crown against the castellans of Baynard's and Montfitcher's castles when it seemed possible they might join the rebellion of the king's sons, as we mentioned back in chapter 73. In this crisis, Londoners showed themselves to be wholly loyal to the crown, even if places like Rouen came off better from that particular episode. The fact that the citizens chose two periods when the crown was particularly weak to assert their right to be a commune, the start of the anarchy and the era when Richard was missing, presumed gone for good, has been interpreted as London exploiting the crown's difficulties for their own ends. Yet paradoxically, it was precisely in those periods that the local nobles and magnates were most dangerous, and the city needed all the powers it could muster to compensate for the withdrawal of strong crown protection. So while we can, and I have said, oh look, London is gaining power from the state, one could also equally argue, oh look, 
London needs to protect itself as the king is weak and without a strong king, they're going to be consumed. And the proof of this is the basic fact that the process by which the citizens extended their control over their own affairs was in the 12th century mostly hesitant, imprecise and easily reversed. Even in the 13th century, the king frequently suspended London's liberties and governed it through royal wardens. The extent to which leading Londoners committed themselves to a policy of pursuing self-government is actually not clear. What we've not mentioned over the last few episodes, however, was something else, something economic. This was caused by King Henry II's decision, soon after his accession, to reorganise the English mints. This included a steady reduction in their number. His purpose, following the policy of his grandfather Henry I, seems to have been to close the mints which no longer paid their way, because the amount of coins in circulation had so fallen that it was no longer profitable to issue regular changes of coin types. This reduction in the number of mints from the 60 or 70 which had served Anglo-Saxon England to only 11 in 1180 almost certainly paralleled a similar decline in the currency and most probably too the decline in the economic fortunes of the nation. The appearance of spice being used to pay for rents or spice rents in London in the 1140s is a symptom of a shortage of coins in that period rather than of expanding trade in pepper. Many of the old moneyers, the coin makers of London, felt that change hard. The opposition of the Londoners to the change is clear from the demand which the citizens made at the time of the Magna Carta for the restoration of their old mint. But they were powerless to protect their interests. We get the idea that if coin making, being a moneyer, was no longer as profitable as it once was, then spices could be, but this ties into how important good relations with the royal court was. The fall of the moneyers indicated how easy it could be for any Londoner to lose control of the royal market for spices. For the dealers in pepper and spices, there was nothing comparable to that of the royal household. The few spices who appeared in English records before the 13th century were conspicuous for their connection to the royal court. The royal spices provided medicines for the court as well as Eclutaries, which are expensive concoctions of spices, which served as both medicines and a rather luxurious dessert. Their consumption was encouraged by the greater experience of Arabic medicine, which English physicians began to pick up because they were studying at schools like Salerno and Montpelier, and also because the Jews brought this knowledge to England. Most of the spices imported were recommended in Arabic medical texts for the treatment of digestive, nervous and heart complaints and were used to prevent fever, bleeding and or vomiting. The pipe roll for 1171 records that the king's physician, a man called Joseph, who was almost certainly Jewish, supplied spices and electories for Henry II's use when he was in Ireland. The Crusades had increased Northerners' familiarity with spice food and drink, but probably Henry II's marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine brought English courtiers into closer contact with Southern tastes and the more liberal use of spices in food. In 1158, the pipe roll records the purchase of pepper, cumin, cinnamon and almonds specifically for the Queen. Fashionable taste followed the lead of the court. The taste for luxuries under the future King John were even more marked and the range of spices purchased by the court increased. Between 1205 and 1207, for example, 
Not only pepper, almonds and cumin were bought, but also rice, cloves, ginger, saffron and nutmeg, while sugar makes its first appearance on the pipe rolls. So King John did do something right, I suppose. In fact, the purchasing power of the royal court meant that it was vital for the pepperers to retain good access to it, which would then suggest they'd be more inclined to maintain good relationships between the city and the crown. And as if to prove that, the name of the alderman who was supposedly in charge of this adultering guild, Edward, may actually show how important the pepperers placed the royal court. By the second half of the 12th century, Londoners had generally adopted Norman Christian names, and Edward, along with other English names, seems to have fallen out of fashion. The entries for London on the pipe rolls of Henry II refer to only five men from London called Edward, two of whom were men of no consequence, and a third had a surname, de Southwark. The fourth was Edward the Reeve, the abbot of Westminster's bailiff, which leaves as the most and probably only likely candidate as the man who was in charge of the Pepperers Guild, the illegal one, being a man called Edward Blund. He appears prominently on the pipe rolls as the chief purchaser for the royal household in London from the 1160s until 1182. Like most men in the royal service, Edward Blund carried out a variety of duties for the kings, but his main work was in London, where he supervised the royal residences and spent large sums of buying provisions, clothing and luxuries for the royal family and the court. They included, besides wine, cloth and furs, large quantities of wax, oil, silks, gold and almonds, goods which the pepperers dealt in. In one document, Blund is described as a chamberlain, and the nature of the work suggests that he may have assumed the responsibilities of an important royal office, that of the King's Chamberlain of London. And here we get another insight into the shadows of a role in London's politics that's often overlooked. This office can be traced back to at least the reign of Henry I, when it seems that its holder came to have responsibility for the royal household and for the king's financial interests in the city. For those London merchants who dealt in luxury trades, it made all the difference to have influence with the king's chamberlain of London. The king's chamberlain also had powers in the city, which went beyond his commercial duties. Almost certainly he sat with the sheriff at the hustings as an important representative of the crown. It's significant that Edward Blund was the second witness after the constable of a tower to sign one particular document, and that he signed it before Henry Fitz Aylwin. He was therefore a man of great importance, perhaps more so in the 12th century than later when his office could be bought by wealthy citizens. If the illegal Pepperers Guild needed a powerful patron to make sure they had access to the royal court, they could find none more suitable than Edward Blund, and his control of the royal market and his influence in the city made him the kind of person that when they wrote down who was in charge of this guild, they wouldn't have even bothered with his surname. When the pipe rolls said Edward, they all knew who they meant. So where are we? In the decades leading up to where we are now, we can see that London's need to form a commune was not just being done because we need to rule ourselves, but to set up safeguards for when the king could not stop powerful nobles from encroaching upon the community. The oligarchs of London, the powerful Eshkivins, were not a self-perpetuating class of patricians, 
but were rather a fluid bunch of the richest families. Their numbers and their names would wax and wane and fluctuate as the ravages of medieval life, where unknown epidemics could cause mass death, as well as the desire to elevate themselves to higher noble status, meant that dynasties would rise and fall and wax and wane with the passing of the years. They ruled because it was expected rich men to rule, as opposed to they themselves sought power. The true power of London, the true self-governance, lay in the ranks of the aldermen, and that the charges against that class, levelled by William Longbeard, that they were self-serving and often guilty of criminal tax avoidance, were probably true. The economy in the 12th century had been in a lot of trouble, and London's richer men had suffered at the changes to the status of the mints of London. And by necessity, the rise in the use of pepper as a rent substitute had seen the pepperers of London seek to organise themselves. But in this they were not alone, as a plethora of adultering guilds of London suggest everyone was seeking to help themselves in the face of economic uncertainty and crippling high taxes. And that by studying the pepperers of London, we get an insight into the importance of the royal household for the economy of the city, and the probable move by the pepperers to seek out the patronage of Edward Blund, the crucial royal chamberlain of the city, as their patron, and it illustrates the interdependency of London towards the crown in this era. There was a lot going on behind the scenes in the shadows, and these insights do add depth to our understanding of this era. However, in the last few decades leading up to the 1190s, things began to change. Crucially, due to the dietary preferences of the southern Europeans who had come to the courts of London during the reign of Eleanor of Aquitaine and to an extent Richard, who was far more Aquitanian than anything else, there was an increase in the demand for spices. and This drove the spice trade back up again. Indeed, the English and London spice trade did grow in size and scale in the last quarter of the 12th century, but this was also due to wider economic stimuli. When new silver mines were opened in Saxony after 1168, England was well-placed to increase its supply of silver and to expand its coinage. It was this expansion which seems to have begun the inflation of prices which become marked in the background from about 1180. The flow of silver meant there was more money to purchase luxury imports. And it seems that when the kings of Castilla, Lyon and Portugal adopted English weight standards, which had also been adopted by Cologne for their new gold coinage in the last quarter of the 12th century, it was because England and the Rhineland had become their country's close trading partners. The trade which brought the pepperous patron saint to London at the beginning of the century, Saint Antonin, was by its end bringing from Spain quantities of gold coins, Spanish silks for the court, and undoubtedly also increased amount of spices. The growing purchasing power of the English attracted foreign merchants in greater numbers to the kingdom. From the south of France came importers of Mediterranean goods and merchants from Montpellier and, and Marseille. Both towns had close economic ties with Genoa and Pisa, and like them, they were able to obtain trading privileges in Syria as a consequence of the Crusades. From their trading bases in the Levant and through new concessions won from Egypt and at Constantinople, the Italians and Southern French were able to increase enormously the amount of Eastern products they imported into Europe. 
However, the Mediterranean merchants had not gained complete control over the spice trade. Northerners reappeared in Italy and Egypt in the second half of the 12th century, where the acute shortage of silver throughout the Near East made it profitable for Europeans to carry bullion eastwards and to invest the profits into luxury items. The demand for silver gave northern merchants an advantage in Mediterranean markets once the supply from Saxony was increased. It is in the 1160s that there's the first evidence that English merchants were again trading in the Mediterranean. In that decade, a Spanish Jew named Benjamin de Tedila traveled from Saragossa to Italy, Egypt and the Middle East and described in detail the communities of merchants he met on the way. At Montpelier, he met Muslim merchants from Egypt and from Palestine and their Christian counterparts from all over Europe, including England. At Alexandria, which he observed was the centre of the trade in spices imported by Muslims from India via the Red Sea, he reported an even wider variety of European merchants, amongst them again the English. And it gets better for London, because in the 1180s notarial registers, they record the presence of an English community in Genoa, which was led by Londoners. The most senior amongst them was a certain Robert of London. In 1186, he bought from a Genoese merchant a valuable investment of pepper, whose monetary worth was 123 Genoese pounds, and which probably weighed about 20 hundredweight. Another document from 1191 records the creation of a business partnership in Genoa between a certain John of London and a young man named Nicholas Fitzhenry, who had apparently recently arrived in the city from London. Robert of London's son, Thomas, entered into partnership with the nephew of one of Genoa's most prominent drapers. This raises the possibility that Robert was financing his purchase of spices by sales of English cloth. Certainly by the 1180s, there was a growing demand in Italy for northern cloth, which had begun to penetrate the markets of Africa and the Levant. And for some decades, English manufacturers were able to hold their own in competition with the people from Flanders. Now, the impact of this increased trade with the Mediterranean and of London participation in it is the apparent greater availabilities of spices throughout England by the end of the 12th century. The expansion of coinage which stimulated trade and the urban economy also led to the greater inflation of prices from the 1180s. It's not easy to trace the effect on the cost of spices because the evidence is sparse in the 12th century and at all times there were different qualities of a particular spice commanded different prices. But we know that inflation during this era at least doubled if not trebled. The price of corn and livestock between 1180 and 1220 proved that. Wages also went up, and by 1210 or 1211, carpenters in Hampshire were earning two pennies a day. A pound of pepper would therefore have cost them about four days' wages. It was still a luxury, but it was about half the price it had been 50 years before. It is therefore most likely that it was these changed economic circumstances, this sudden economic rush caused by an influx of silver and the inflation that this caused that meant that in the latter part of the 12th century the London Pepperers Guild needed to be formed in order to meet these increased opportunities and to defend themselves from increased risk. So these are basically the moves of the dancers in the shadows. The behind the scenes economic, political and practical motivations that so troubled London in the years after 1196. And when studying the shadows, hopefully we see things in a new light, perhaps.
1197, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Hubert Walter, decided to buy some land south of the river. Back in 1190, a predecessor of his had purchased some land to found a college of secular canons, but this had not materialised over the decade. And in 1197, Hubert added to this with land in Lambeth, including a manor house on the banks of the river. This was to be the start of Lambeth Palace. Although we are a few years away from it being constructed, still I find it interesting if Walter Hubert was looking for somewhere to live when he visited London. Well, isn't it interesting? He picked somewhere just across from Westminster, yes, but also across the river and a distance away from the city who only the year before had called him a murderer, a defiler of church spaces, and the killer of the innocent William Longbeard. Yeah, in that light, the Archbishop of Canterbury picking Lambeth as his base makes a little bit more sense. 1197 also saw the building of St Mary's Spittal on the east side of Bishopgate, with extensive ground spreading to the north. By the way, Spittal does not refer to saliva, it's shorthand for hospital. And so we emerge from the shadows and emerge at a special date. The year is 1199. And blinking in the daylight of the beginning of the 13th century, we have to come to terms with a terrible bit of news. Richard, the King of England, first of his name, was dead. He was besieging a minor castle in a minor rebellion away in a minor, unimportant part of France. A single crossbow bolt had taken him in the shoulder. He'd ripped it out, but... The wound had become infected. He had rotted away, visited briefly before he died by his mother, and then passed onto the next world. And now, suddenly, his younger brother, the duplicitous and conniving John, was the King of England. And London and King John were going to have one hell of a problematic relationship. And I'll leave it there. Sorry if this episode sounded disjointed. This one was actually recorded in several parts. And trying to bring it all together has turned out to be somewhat of a nightmare. But hopefully you could follow it. And hopefully you found it entertaining. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast exists only due to listener support. And I would like to gratefully thank the subscribers who've kept us going for another month. If you find this podcast entertaining, and I am really amazed and humbled and grateful if you do, and if you can help, you can support it via the membership page over on the Buy Me A Coffee site, which I link to, or, or make a one-off contribution there if you want, if you don't want to become a member, or if you don't have the funds or you do not wish to do that, then I will be humbled by you simply leaving a nice review or by giving the show five stars to impress the algorithms which dictate how much attention a podcast gets. And that's enough for me this week. Once again, thanks for your support. I'll be back next week for Chapter 81 as we enter the reign of King John and the Dark Age of London comes to its terrifying crescendo. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.